We're in the year of 2023. Needless to say that a year ago, the whole world started to be astonished regarding the war in Ukraine. And initially, everyone thought the war should be ending very soon, hopefully by the end of the year of 2022. However, fast forward, this is not really the case. As a matter of fact, after the leader between the two countries, one from China and one from Russia, met up in Moscow, right now, it is safe to say that we don't see any ending point for the war in Ukraine at this moment. But meanwhile, this war has not only caused this economic devastation around the world, and also has raised a major concern particularly related to the countries in Southeast Asia. For example, did you know that more Russians today, because of the war and also the Ukrainians, flooded to many countries in, in Southeast Asia, for example, in Indonesia. Now, their presence in this country caused a firestorm, not just politically and socially. So that's why in this episode, we need to talk about those Russians and Ukrainians, they flocked to Bali or flocked to Indonesia and tried to change some of the questions or the stability of the country. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, which is Joe Rockman. Now, Joe is a freelance journalist now covering Indonesia and ASEAN stories. Well, Joe, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and um, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to chat about my piece a little bit more. Well, Joe, the pleasure is all mine. Again, as we mentioned before, initially when I discovered you, because this amazing article that you wrote, which is entitled, Russians flock to Bali to avoid war as locals grumble. Now, before we talk about the attitude and the reaction from the citizens in Bali, I wanted you to help us to understand. At this moment, we know that Bali has been considered one of the most popular tourist spots in Indonesia, but you are located in Indonesia. So, Joe, help us to understand what is the current economic situation and also the political situation in Bali today? Yeah, of course. So, yeah, as you, you are completely right, Bali has long been an enormous centre of tourism for it, um, for Indonesia, even globally. It's been it's seen mass tourism for decades now, really, I believe since the eighties and nineties. Um, and that also, I mean, it's um, that also means that the pandemic was very hard for it. Uh, it was obviously tourism completely collapsed during that period. And so the economy of Bali, I mean, the economy of Indonesia was hit pretty hard by the pandemic, but Bali particularly, um, because it was so dependent upon uh, foreigners visiting for income. But equally, um, I think it's worth emphasizing that like a lot of places which have seen the rise of mass tourism, be it, you know, Barcelona, for example, mm. or Rome, or, um, uh, you know, various other examples across the world, that the, the real influx of you know millions of tourists every year it i mean locals are often very happy um to for the economic benefits but then it can bring problems and tensions as well there's the inevitable thing that tourists aren't always the best behaved people they want to go out they want to party they want to drink that's fine but if it's your hometown and that's happening every night maybe it gets a little exhausting 
Um, and it can, you know, put pressure on local services and infrastructure. So, for example, people are very worried about the traffic mm. um, in Bali. Uh, I mean, partly some of it is just reckless driving by tourists. So there's this, uh, you know, people will turn up, hire a moped, hit the roads. Maybe they don't really know what they're doing. And even if they do, they don't necessarily know or follow the local laws, like laws on wearing a helmet. But even then, just the sheer crowds... Um, if you go to, for example, Ubud, where I am currently, it's a big tourist spot in the middle of Dubai. Uh, it is the the the, the streets. The, the streets are not designed to deal with the amount of traffic mm. and people going through it. Like you have to wade your way through the streets in the evening, almost. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that what what Bali's been dealing with is a is a is a classic dilemma of big tourist spots, which is that. That the, the economic benefits come in, and this is very good, especially in developing countries. It's nice to have richer foreigners bringing in, paying quite a lot more than, and also um, it's good for the government. It brings in foreign exchange often, which is very useful um, on a sort of more macro level. But then it's got these problems of balancing local mm. interests against tourist interests and that's that's something something which a lot of countries have struggled with I think. very good joe again i want to go back to the article because again the title of the article is russians flock to bali to avoid war now we know that uh, within the article you also mentioned that the bali governor asked the central government of indonesia to stop what we called visas on arrival, particularly for the Russians. And now help us to understand, by having the Russians in Bali, how do they or how did they have changed the social order completely? And why did the governor in Bali stop them coming into this popular tourist spot? What are the reasons behind that? I think, I think there's two things to say here just before we get underway. I mean, I, I don't think they've changed the social order completely. I think it's, as I was saying, these are quite old problems. It's just as the particular circumstances have given them a new urgency. And equally, so far, the governor mm. hasn't been able to stop Russians getting visas on arrival. Uh, that's in the hands of the central government, which isn't too keen for it. So to my knowledge, if you're Russian, you can still land in Denpasar Airport and immediately fill out a form just on adding mm. and immediately get a 30-day visa for the country, which you can then extend for another 30 days to 60 days. But, yeah, the, what's happened is the Russians have been in Bali for a pretty long time. Like, they, they you know, they're a big tourist group. They're not the biggest, but there's there's long been a presence here. They um, And there's some, you know, like a lot of, like the Australians and like um, and other groups from other countries, some of them have you know really fallen in love with Bali and settled. Like so, there's various legal ways mm. to do this: um, residency visas and the like, which are often or retirement visas, which are often tied to being able to prove certain levels of assets or investment. And then there are like there are like less legal or grayer or frankly illegal ways to do it. The grey mm. ways there's you could, there's certain visas which uh, I think B2211As two, 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 one, one um, can give you pretty extent, will let you uh, stay in Indonesia for pretty long periods of time. And there's kind of a lot of people will do that and work off their laptops, work remotely, 
which hasn't caused too many problems. I mean, it, it's a little grey, but I've also talked to people who said that visa officials told them that this was okay to do. And then there's like other slight, like shadier or possibly illegal ways to do it where you can walk down the street in um, Bali and see ads for quote unquote visa fixers mm. who will, you will go in, that you will pay a fee and they will come up with a visa for you. They, uh, how legal that is, you know, they probably know someone who knows someone is this sort of situation. So, but what's happened, in the, the, so there's been tensions around this before, um, but what's really happened here is that, so, and, you know, Russians, Russians have just been one group amongst many, but because of the war, a lot of Russians want to leave Russia in a hurry for fairly obvious reasons. Mm. Um, the really big wave of Russians arriving came uh, in after September, I believe, when Russia introduced potential conscription for young men. So suddenly, you, if you're unlucky, you might get a knock on the door or have a government official, you know, literally grab you on the streets in some cases, mm. I believe, and say, right, you're in the army now, you're going to Ukraine. Obviously, there's quite a lot of people who really don't want to do this. You know, they, um, so they've gone to all sorts, Russians have gone to all sorts of places. You can find them in Armenia, like in Barbiga numbers and in Bali. Actually, you can find them in Mongolia. You can find them in Europe. You can find them in Argentina. There's so many Russians in Argentina now that there was a very funny story about the problems of finding Orthodox Russian priests mm. to, to christen your children there. But Bali is one of these places where they've come. That's partly because there are some pre-existing Russian communities. But what's happened is a lot more Russians have come in because they're leaving quickly and they're leaving in a hurry and they can get into Bali. And a lot of them are planning to stay for longer because, as you said, there's there's no obvious end to the war in sight. Mm. So you they want to stay here for the duration, probably. And that also means that they need to earn money. Um, and this is more controversial. So, like, um, at the moment, the, the economy in Bali is actually still recovering. Like, the numbers of tourists are not back at pre-pandemic levels, and, you know, people are still dealing, I imagine, with debts or, like, you know, lost income from the period mm. of the pandemic. So there, there's a sense of tightening economic pinch. And what's what a lot of people object to with these Russians, what they say that they're doing is they're not arriving and, you know, tapping away on a laptop, which people maybe will turn a blind eye to. But they're saying that increasingly they're moving into jobs which Balinese say, hang on, we used to do those jobs mm. and we used to make money out of tourists and foreign visitors from this. And now you're doing those jobs and that means less income for us. So things like motorbike rental, uh, surf tutoring, uh, gym helping out, you know, mm. personal trainer at the gym, uh, restaurants, manicures, pedicures, whatever. Um, and part of this um, is actually also tied to the fact that there's more Russians now. But since there's more Russians that have come, you can almost have like a little enclosed Russian community where less well-off Russians will sell services to better-off Russians. So, and that's also, I think this is mentioned in the article, uh, there was actually a Ukrainian woman who speculated to me, that's a little bit more doable if you're not a terribly rich Russian person, because the cost of living in Bali is actually lower than it used to be, again, because of the pandemic. So you've got Russians coming in, not just coming in in sufficient num in larger numbers, but staying for longer and increasingly 
some Russians doing jobs for other Russians. And so Balinese feel like they're competing with them mm. now. They feel that these aren't guests that we're making money off. They feel like these are now someone who's I have to uh, I have to compete with in the job market. Mm. And that's really changed the dynamic, I think. Well, Joe, again, it's interesting that in the article, but again, I want to ask one more question before we move on to the next topic is sure, sure, sure. you mentioned that right now it's almost in this competition between the Russians and the locals in Bali. But in reality, the Russians, they know, number one, they're the outsiders of the territory. But number two, they never thought about owning this place before right so in other words if let's just say if the russians they understood those two principles clearly i don't see any problem with it because we know that again by having those migrants or by having those international citizens as long as it boosts the domestic economy as long as it helps the domestic economy what's the problem of coexisting what is the problem of living together and making the place more prosperous or more attractive i have i have a degree of sympathy with that view i think i so i i joked to another journalist that i was that i was chatting to that if i was running this story in the UK, and it was about locals in some town who aren't terribly sure about all the Polish people who have turned up and are now working as plumbers, people might be less sympathetic. Mm. It's a complicated issue. I think that, I think that, like, people, I think, inevitably always feel a little possessive towards their own homeland. They go, mm. we were here first, this is where I live, this is, you know, you've come in, there's this idea to an extent maybe not, not even a guess, but there's an expectation that you're you're living a little bit more in my world, so I expect you to adapt to me. On the other hand, I you know, I talk to some so I did understand what the Russians um you know, there is evidence that migration can indeed boost the economy. Migrants come in, mm. they not only they're not only competing for jobs and services, but they're consuming them as well. I mean, you can have a debate if the Russians are just consuming services from other Russians, maybe it maybe that is attenuated, but I think we, we can be sympathetic to those arguments. And equally, I can be sympathetic to, like, the Russian guy, Anton, who I talked to, who said, look, I need to make a living. Um, I don't actually make that much money. It's really difficult to get a Indonesian visa properly. I don't have enough money for that. And there's, you know, there's other people in other Russians in the situation like me. And, you know, some of them have wives and kids. They need to make a living. Okay, fair enough. But then equally, there's... I think the Balinese point of view, and indeed a point of view I, I heard from a couple of better off Russians who have actually one better off Russian in particular, mm. who had managed to get himself an investor's visa, say, well, you could go anywhere in the world, actually. And but you've you know, you could uh, you could go to Europe, which would offer you asylum potentially. But you've come here and equally, I think that. And if you're working here, it's there's a little bit of a sense of my house, my rules. And equally, I think that. What one of the people I talked to, uh, Nilo Jelantic, a Balinese businesswoman, she's quite famous. She's an international shoe designer, apparently. Mm. Um, and as she put it, like, if I go abroad, I, she says, I'm married to a French man. If I go to France and I want to set up a business there and I want to sell my shoes and I, or even just do a short business trip, I have to go through a lot of, um, you know, bureaucratic process. And I do it. I do it all properly. 
I pay my permits, you know, I, I, I submit my documents. Mm. And then when I'm there, I re I'm registered properly and I'm paying taxes. Whereas they say her view was that these people have arrived, they haven't followed um, proper procedure. And then when they're, when they're setting up these businesses, they, you know, because they don't have the right to set up the businesses, they aren't properly registered, maybe they're not paying taxes. And there's, you know, in that point, they resent that. They feel, well, I'm paying taxes and these businesses which already maybe mm. not probably set up. Oh, and so, the, you know, there's, it becomes a debate. I think, you know, I think there is, I think it, there is room for sympathy for Russians and I can feel it myself. But I also think that one, one needs to take seriously, um, or at least listen to locals who have complaints about fairness and ideas of level playing field. Um, and I think, you know, I think that that's where the debate really lies. Well, but Joe, here's another question is, why can the central government in Indonesia offered a legality advice or offered a legal path for the Russians and the Ukrainians to stay in Bali or open up the business? I mean, again, we understand it's frustrating that for the locals to face the dilemma to say, hey, listen, those people are running businesses illegally and where they have to pay it under the table, but there seemed to be a legal way to do so. But why has the government in Indonesia has not done anything in order to prevent this clash between the Russians and the locals or between the Ukrainians and the locals? What is the reaction from the central government at this moment? I think I think that's a very reasonable question. I mean, actually, again, when I was talking to Nilo Jelantic, one of the things she was saying is that the government needs to make this needs to step up and provide you know nice clear rules to make this regular. She says, you know, I mean, not just she said not you know not just the people setting up visas, but the people tapping away on laptops. Mm. I think there's a quote in the article. She says, I don't want the police grabbing you out of out of a cafe the moment you open your laptop. But equally, there should be we need some sort of system to make this more, more regular, more legally mm. clear, register them to pay taxes, all, all of these things, and you know have a proper system in place. I think that the um, and the, the government really, I don't think, has stepped up for this properly. There was an idea of um rolling out a digital nomad visa uh, it was supposed to go out last year and now it's supposed to come out this year and that idea was floated a lot during the pandemic when a lot of people came to mm. bali to work remotely because hey pandemic was a big push for these things but it's it's not it doesn't look actually very what they promised it would be it's actually just gives you the right to reside uh, and i think uh work um reside in Indonesia and work for foreign companies remotely, not, as far as I can tell, not actually set up a local business. If you can prove a few bureaucratic hurdles and if you have about $140,000 in your mm. bank account. Um, so it's actually just a visa. At that point, it's not really a visa for average workers. It's a visa for pretty rich expats. They have something pretty similar already called retirement visas where if you're over 55 and you can prove certain levels of assets or regular income, you can retire here and have a, like a rolling visa to live luxuriously. So I think I think that that's a real missed opportunity. And I think it is worth saying that, you know, Indonesia is a country where it is hard to get a work visa. It is hard to get residency. It's bureaucratic. It's slow. Um, uh, there's 
people, uh, there's sort of protectionist elements to this. People are often uh, suspicious of foreign workers if mm. they see them as competition. There's examples in other sectors which I could talk about if you're interested. And it's not always, and, you know, theoretically, some of these uh, Russians could potentially try and claim refugee status um, if they're eligible for conscription. There's a whole series of conditions around this um, labor. But I imagine that some of them could make the claims. But Indonesia is not really used to taking in refugees. So at the moment, I think that this is a country of 273, 270 more, 4 million people. Uh, and there's like 20,000 refugees mm. total in Indonesia. I'm like, if you take the, the Rohingya crisis has been really interesting actually on this point. So there's about, there's, um, there are a lot of Rohingyas who try, often actually leaving, by, not leaving Myanmar directly, they'll be leaving refugee camps in Bangladesh because the t- conditions are very bad there. And they will get on these rickety boats and try and make it to some other country. And a lot of them will die very tragically out in the ocean. Um, mm. But some but someone made it to Indonesia recently, 200 landed in Aceh. And it's, it's very, you know, local people have been kind to them. They rescued them. And there is support provided for them, but they, they don't actually have the right to work, which mm. is a real problem because they need to work to live. And there's, a, I believe, currently a total of 900 total Rohingya refugees in Indonesia. So it's not a country with uh, a great deal of experience or, frankly, a great tradition of um, dealing with refugees or let alone dealing with like large-scale migration of foreign workers. There's, I mean, it's much more used to Indonesians going abroad to work, frankly. That's right, Joe. Now, I want to move on our topic with um, uh, to the next level, which is the social media. Again, within the article, you also mentioned mm. the Indonesians or the locals in Bali that they use the social media to express their anger, frustration towards the current situation. Now, my first question, Joe, is... What is the purpose of bringing the story or bringing their uh, emotional vulnerabilities onto social media? I mean, again, is that the main mechanism to attract international attention or to draw international sympathy? That's number one. Number two is how effective is it today for people to use social media, particularly in this case? What do you say to that, Joe? I think. I mean, I think the social media is for themselves. Like a lot of this stuff is in is in Indonesia. Like you, you can't read it. If, like you won't be able to access much if you're only speaking English mm. or you know or you. Um, I think you know Indonesia is a country with you know it's it's a pretty young country. The average mm. age is about twenty nine. It's got very high levels of digital penetration, especially in places like Bali. And people, you know, they're massive fans of using social media. You know, people post like you know, like everywhere, people post mm. on it constantly. But I mean, to give you a sense of like quite how you know quite how people can put on social media. There's currently some corruption cases in Indonesia where evidence is being used where the kids are posting, the, the kids of the officials are posting pictures of them living very extravagant lifestyles and people go, wait, hang on, what's your parents' salary supposed to be? How can you afford that? <laughs> so, like, a lot of stuff goes on to social media in Indonesia. Like, you know, people 
use it almost as a reflex, I think. And a lot of politics happens on social media as well. Certainly the, the 2019 election saw a, a huge amount of it play out on YouTube, on Twitter, on Instagram especially. Um, the next election is going to be the same. But also, you know, this stuff can, can work at a, a... But, you know, it's work, work at a sort of sub-political level. So I think one of the reasons people might be complaining on social media is because at the moment there is not... Up until fairly recently, mm. with the governor's announcement that he wants to stop visas on arrival, it's quite rare for Balinese politicians to comp- complain about tourists. I think there's part of it's a politeness thing. Indonesians are often very polite people. They don't. Um, I th- but I think also, you know, there's an element of cold hard cash. That's a very, very profitable industry. You don't want to make tourists feel unwelcome, and so it's. I think that. Social media, um, so there's there's not a great amount of political mm. discourse on it. Social media was the place where a lot of these complaints could play out. But as I said, it's it's like you know, it's it's like how you might complain to your friends over a drink in a bar or you know just sitting around. Like people people use it on a very just everyday level, um, and so there's that. And then the final element I'd point out is that a lot of people might see bad behaviour. Because foreigners, uh, not just Russians, but for all stripes, have put it on social media themselves. They don't really, you know, they're posting for the friends and then they don't really think, hang on, actually some Indonesians, some Balinese people might see this. So there was a famous case uh, very recently of a Russian who I believe he had um, climbed up Mount Agung. It's uh, quite a sacred mountain Mm. in Bali. There's an important temple there. There's a lot of rituals around it. And for some reason, he decided to take his pants off and there's a picture of him, arms spread, looking out over the landscape and his bum on show. And locals noticed this and, you know, immediate lots of criticism. Um, He's since taken it down. He's apologised very profusely. Actually, Nilo Jelantik was one of the people that organised him to apologise and take part in a religious ceremony, which sets things right. Um, He's then going to be... He's still going to be deported, I believe, but he will have the the right to come back in and uh, Nilo Jelantic said she would like to see him come back again and maybe talk to some other tourists about not what to do. But so, you know, there's, it's, I mean, so, I mean, just, that's a slightly long answer, but which I've given you with many side tracks, but to give it three things, one, a lot of political discussion happens on social media in Indonesia. Mm. Two, just a lot of people just live their lives on social media mm. in Indonesia. And three, it's a way that people can see what foreigners are up to um, and share it with each other and complain about that because the foreigners are also on social media all, all the time. Because, you know, you've gone to Bali, you want to put a photo up for your right. friends, for the ground, so they see where you've been. And I think that there's perhaps a fight, like what I would also think is worth considering is that there's a, there can, you know, people talk about how social media has problems of virality and problems of accentuating conflict sometimes. So, you know, it's now, obviously, if, if you see someone doing something inappropriate or disrespectful, like, you know, not just this, like driving recklessly, arguing with a cop, being rude to a local, it goes viral. And so it can create this thing where it's, you, it's very easy to have lots of perceptions of these people, of foreigners behaving badly and particularly Russians behaving badly, because I think, you know, these things snowball. So it can create... People's main impressions mm. of what's going on come from social media. Certainly, like, I've asked people about this, and the first thing that they cite is social media sometimes. 
And so that's that's interesting. It can it can be a way to you know let off steam and raise issues, but it, I think it can sometimes maybe have a distorting effect. I don't I don't want to be too categorical. You know, I've I'm I'm not Indonesian. I've done I've done some reporting and I've talked to some people, but it's something that I think is worth considering, maybe. Well, Joe, I think that one thing we learned is the smart thing to do is just be careful about what we are sharing via social media. Again, not only that today, social media serve as a platform to really expand our friendships around the world and also help us to understand some of the social and political agendas also around the world today. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Joe Rockman. And again, Joe is a freelance journalist now covering Indonesia and ASEAN stories. I strongly encourage everyone to go on social media to follow Joe and also with his latest article, which is entitled Russians Flock to Bali to Avoid War as Local Grumble. Joe, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. We'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to follow this political and social and cultural changes, not only in Bali, but also around the nations in Southeast Asia. Thank you so much for doing this.